Thank you, Jess. <clears throat> well, it's good to see everyone, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, preach this morning. Uh, as Bill indicated, Jamie is on vacation, and when he called me and asked me to pinch hit for him, he gave me the option. Do you want to continue on in Peter, First Peter, or do you want to do something else? And I said, well, I'm perfectly happy leaving First Peter in your capable hands. So I'm going to do uh, something different today. The uh, title today is The King, the Kingdom, and You. And we're going to be looking at some various passages related to the kingdom. Um, I've had on my mind quite some time to preach on the kingdom. And then uh, a couple of uh, times in March we had two men who beat me to the punch, and that's okay. So this is uh, the third in an unofficial series on the kingdom. Um, ben Morrow and Zane Seals both preached on the kingdom back in March, and they did an excellent job. And uh, well, they looked at two specific passages on the kingdom, and I'm going to kind of step back and look at the, the broad picture today and give us some, uh, some background and uh, some things to really challenge our understanding of the kingdom and what it means to be a follower of King Jesus. And I'd like to start, uh, number one, with kingdom anticipated. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> you, can go all, you have to go all the way back to the time of Abraham when God first declared that his people would eventually become a, a monarchy, a kingdom. He promised Abraham that kings would come forth from him, and then in the law of Moses, long before there was a monarchy, uh, the law of Moses provided certain details telling what kings could and could not do. So God intended for his people to become a monarchy all along. The problem was their reason for wanting to become a monarchy was misguided. They wanted to become a monarchy because all the nations of the world around them had kings, and they wanted a king for that reason. And so they jumped the gun, you might say, and they got a king that they shouldn't have, King Saul. Ideally, David should have been the first king of Israel. And it is during the reign of David and Solomon, each reigned for 40 years, during that 80-year period that Israel's monarchy, their kingdom, became the dominant nation of the Mediterranean world. And it is through that that, number one, the kingdom was foreshadowed in the reigns of David and Solomon. There are numerous passages in the Old Testament, particularly in the 2 Samuel 7 and in some of the Psalms, that indicate that, king, that there's a king, and all these kings from the line of David are going to reign, and one king is going to reign forever. So the prophets also declared that a new king from the line of David would come and establish an eternal kingdom. The problem was that never did happen. Shortly after Solomon died, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom went into captivity. About 250 years later, that nation ceased to exist. Then the southern kingdom went into captivity. About 150 years later, there was no king, there was no temple, there was nobody in the Holy Land. Something went terribly wrong. Or did it? By the time we get to the New Testament, king language has started again. The birth of the king is announced. And this is the king that the prophets of old had said would come. And so kingdom terminology now permeates the entire New Testament 
not just because uh, the king is there, but because it's, we are still under the reign of the king. Okay? And that's the second thing I want to take a look at very quickly, is kingdom terminology. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's got to be the most boring sermon outline point in the history of preaching. But that's the best I could do. Um, let's look at it, uh, kingdom by the numbers, you might say, for a moment. The word kingdom occurs 162 times in the New Testament, with 141 of them referring to God's kingdom. And that's a lot of references to kings and kingdoms in the New Testament. They are greatly emphasized, especially in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts. And Paul does refer to the kingdom of God 14 times, and we'll look at one of those in a moment. Uh, the terminology is varied. It can go like this. It can be the kingdom equals the kingdom of God equals the kingdom of heaven. There's no difference. Uh, the kingdom of heaven only occurs in Matthew. That's his favorite way to refer to it. But they all refer to the same thing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ is also used, the kingdom of the Lord. All of these refer to the kingdom that was promised and then began with the coming of Jesus. What is also important to understand is that the kingdom is often in view even when the word kingdom does not occur. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the entire New Testament is telling us about the king and the kingdom and what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. Even when the kingdom isn't referred to specifically, even in Paul's letters, even in the general epistles, kingdom language is there. All those commands, all those exhortations, all those principles are there to help us understand what it means to be loyal to Jesus, the King. <clears throat> now, and one other thing that, that we don't have time to pursue, kingdom does not equal church. Those are not the same thing. They do overlap. The church is part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is not exactly the same as the church. That is a sermon for another day. So... <laughs> Um, so now that we've seen that, let's move on a little bit. <clears throat> exactly what is the kingdom? So the third point here is kingdom defined. Kingdom defined. And this is, this is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the reign of God through his redeemed people on earth, beginning at Christ's first coming and culminating in his permanent reign over all things at his second coming. Now, what this means is we are in the kingdom now. We're part of an invisible kingdom, a kingdom that only his citizens even know exists. Only people of faith know is there. In fact, if you were to go out and take a poll and ask people, do you believe the kingdom of God is here? Do you believe the kingdom of Jesus is here? They'll think you're crazy. But people of faith know better. And what Jesus did particularly in passages like the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes that Zane's preached on, is to tell us what the king expects of his citizens, those who are loyal to him. This is what kingdom citizens look like. We're not to take up arms. We're not a military force. This is a kingdom that's going to conquer through love and peace and mercy. This is how we bring other people into the kingdom. 
And that takes us to uh, our second bullet point. The kingdom of God, then, is both now and later. It is both already and not yet. The kingdom idea is rather complex, but it has two major aspects to it. The time that is now, from the ascension of Jesus until his return, the time of the king's absence, where we as his followers live lives pleasing to him and bring other people into the kingdom. And then there's that future kingdom where he will come and literally reign and judge all and rule over all. And your relationship to now, him now in this kingdom will determine your position in the kingdom in the future too. Fourth, <clears throat> kingdom citizens. This sounds pretty important, doesn't it? So how does one become a citizen of this kingdom? First of all, entrance into the kingdom is contingent upon new birth and faith. There's a famous passage in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, where a Pharisee sought Jesus out, named Nicodemus. And he wanted to talk about all the miracles that Jesus was performing. And Jesus changed the subject. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, wait a minute. How am I going to get back in my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus says, no, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. The new birth is how a person comes into the kingdom. It's like you're born into this world physically. You have to be born spiritually into the kingdom of God. And that includes faith. In fact, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, is right there in this context. That you have to believe in the name of the unique Son of God. That is how you become a kingdom citizen. But that's not all. As we've already said, kingdom citizens have responsibilities. And under kingdom citizens then, Jesus tells us what kingdom citizens look like. The vast majority of Jesus' teaching is all about this. What he wants us to do, how we are to behave, how we are to relate to one another, And then, uh, let me give you an example. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we've already talked about that, the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus begins by describing these kingdom citizens. At the end of the message, he then says, Not everyone in that day who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying there? He says, I'm going to be the one who determines who gets into this future kingdom. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he tells them, this huge crowd, that on judgment day, I'm going to be the one to judge you. I'm going to be the one to determine if you get into this future kingdom of God. And in fact, he goes on to say in many, many places that that will be determined by your relationship to him. 
So, this is what... <clears throat> This is what we see so often in the Gospels. Let's move on and take a look at some of the examples here. The Kingdom Illustrated, number five. Now there are 34 parables by my count in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, in the teachings of Jesus. And basically they're all doing the same thing. They're illustrating spiritual truths about the, the kingdom. In other words, they are describing spiritual realities. That's, we don't have time to look at all 34 of them. Uh, that too is a sermon or a series for another day. But let's take a look at a few of them. In um, Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> Jesus tells a story about a king who is absent. He tells about a nobleman who left a country and goes to, a, to receive a kingdom. And that's a reference, of course, to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, leaving heaven and coming to earth to receive a kingdom. But then he leaves the kingdom, and upon his return, he brings judgment on those who refused to acknowledge his lordship. And he judges them harshly. What does this tell us? This means that we are in that time of the king's absence and that one day he is going to come back and he is going to judge everyone who has rejected his right to rule over them. Another parable, Matthew 13. Actually, there's two, two major parables there that I'd like to address. One is the parable of the sower where... Jesus is seen as the one who goes out and plants seeds, and some seeds fall on good ground, some do not. Some of these seeds grow and bear fruit, others do not. And mixed in, also in another parable, are tares or weeds. This tells us that the kingdom involves both good people and bad people, good people, righteous people, and bad people, those who rejected Jesus as king. And the only way, Jesus says in this parable, the only way to tell the difference is to wait till harvest time. You know, I think that's a terrifying reality, especially for those of us down here in the Bible Belt, which I think is uh, probably better called the church belt. I think it would be naive of us to believe that everyone in this room right now really knows Jesus. What Jesus is telling us is that during this time of his absence, when the harvest is going on, there's going to be a mixture of people who look like Christians but really are not. They claim to be loyal to the king, but they're not. And I hope that would be a challenge to all of us. In First Peter, he calls us to make, he calls on us to all of us to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves, to see if we really know Jesus. And there's one other parable I'd like to also address. <clears throat> it's a very well known, probably the most well known parable Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point Jesus is making there, I think, addresses 
a reality addresses a problem that has plagued the people of God for thousands of years. And that's the way we, we view other people, view in a racial sense. Because what Jesus is talking about here are two groups of people who absolutely hated each other. We call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jew would never put the word good in front of the word Samaritan. There was no such thing. The Samaritans were the result of interbreeding between the Jews and the Babylonians that settled in Samaria between Galilee and Judea after the captivity was over. So they were considered half-breeds. They were also considered traitors. They built their own temple. They even had their own version of the Law of Moses. And in fact, in one place in the Gospels, the Jewish leaders got so angry at Jesus, they said, he's got a demon or he's a Samaritan. Those are the two worst things they could think to say about him. And so Jesus uses that, and he's talking to Jewish people here. A Jewish man's walking down the road, and a bunch of Jewish thugs beat him up. Two Jewish religious leaders walk right by him. But a Samaritan stops and helps him. That must have been shocking to the people that heard this. What does this mean for us? Well, see, the answer's been in the Bible all along. All human beings are the offspring of Adam and Eve, without exception. All human beings are guilty of sin and deserve eternal punishment, without exception. That puts us all on the same level, does it not? And in redemption, Paul says, Galatians 3.28, in Christ... There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ. The answers have been right here all along in Scripture about what to do about different races. You know, technically, as far as the Bible is concerned, there's only one race. There's the human race. We all are descended from Adam and Eve. We all died in Adam. And we all have one hope of salvation, the blood of Jesus. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the Gentile Messiah. For believers in America, he's the American Messiah. For believers in Europe, he's the European Messiah. You see my point? Because there is no other. And it's a tragedy that the Church of Jesus Christ so many times in 2,000 years has been on the wrong side of that issue. It's as if the story, the parable of the Good Samaritans, not even there, or anything else in Scripture that addresses this issue. If we look at it from the biblical perspective, if God has destroyed distinctions between Jew and Gentile, that covers it all. We cannot reject 
someone God has accepted into his kingdom. Because we all get there by grace and grace alone. Moving on. Number six, kingdom priorities. In Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 33, Jesus warns about not counting the cost. When you do anything, building a house, you've got to count the cost. Going to any kind of business adventure, you need to count the cost. And he was specifically addressing counting the cost of what it means to follow him. No doubt this is the passage where Dietrich Bonhoeffer got the title for his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. Jesus does not promise his followers wealth, happiness, and continuous blessing, physical, monetary blessing. There's not one passage in the New Testament that supports that concept. If anything, it's constantly saying the opposite. You are going to have trouble. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have pain. You're going to suffer loss. You're going to be persecuted. You may even be martyred. When you weigh that against the value of knowing Jesus... Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And this was a man who knew how to suffer. And the word worthy there, anytime you see the word worthy, the Greek idea there is a scale. Paul is simply saying, you put my sufferings on this side, and then you put the glory that is going to be revealed to me on this side. No contest. Paul even calls it a momentary light affliction elsewhere. As you read the resume of Paul's suffering, I don't know if I would have put it that way. But he did. But Jesus also looks at it from another perspective. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Gaining the world but losing your soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul forever? Let's think about all the great conquerors of the world. If we could bring them back, all the pharaohs of Egypt, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Jesus Caesar, and all the Roman emperors, or in more modern times, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong. If we could bring them all back from the grave, all back from the fires of torment, and ask them, was it worth it? I think every single one of them would say, no, it was not. They've had decades, centuries, even millennia to think about this and what is going to happen in the future when Jesus stands before them and they are judged and cast into the lake of fire forever. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, what does it profit? What's really important to you in this life? It's really sad that the vast majority of human beings go throughout their lives and never even think about the afterlife. 
They don't know what terrifying reality is awaiting them. And see, it's too late for all those would-be conquerors, or those who did conquer, it's too late. They're gone. Decision time is behind them. So what are the priorities? Let's look at it from a positive perspective. The first and second greatest commandments. For those of us who know Jesus, here's our priorities. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. A, uh, a lawyer, and this is not a... <laughs> uh, this is an expert in the law of Moses trying to trip Jesus up. Comes and asks him, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus doesn't stop there. And he says, and the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. Everything the law and the prophets said can be boiled down to those two laws, those two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And the reason for that is because if you love God, you will love the person whom God created in his own image and likeness. And therefore, we must be compelled to love our neighbor as well. And as far as the Good Samaritan is concerned, everybody's your neighbor. Your neighbor is anybody who is near you that needs your love, your mercy, your help. Now, <clears throat> back when I was growing up, when I was high school, college, I don't know if people still do this or not. People are constantly making priority lists. And you know, you're supposed to have priorities in life, and you're supposed to, and if you go to church, then you know that God's supposed to be on your priority list. Preferably number one. I'm not so sure that's the way we should see this. In fact, I'm convinced it's not. See, God doesn't want to be on your priority list. He doesn't even want to be number one on your priority list. He wants to be the whole list. Take a look at this chart. I think this is the best way to understand a priority list. God's in the center, and all the elements of your life around it need to be centered in Him. And everything you do needs to be derived from what He says in His Word. And what we don't want to do is deny one responsibility at the expense of another. Make one more so than the other. God wants you to be the best husband you can be according to the teachings of His Word. He wants you to be the best dad you can be according to the teachings of His Word. The best employee. The best witness to lost people. And whatever ministry you're involved in, he wants you to be the best that you can be in light of what His Word teaches us about these things. And I think, though, that we could very well put the word Jesus there where God is, can't we? Because that's tantamount to the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus says in Luke 14... He demands loyalty to himself above all, even family. You know, they say that love is, I mean, blood is thicker than water. But blood is not more important than spiritual realities. If I have to make a choice between 
lost family people and my loyalty to Jesus, I have to choose Jesus every time. In fact, he puts it in very strong language. You have to hate your mother and father to show your love to me. And this is just a Semitic way of showing priority. The one you love has priority over everything else. And not that Jesus is literally demanding that you hate your mother and father, but you have to choose him above all. Moving on to number seven, kingdom principles. Since the entire New Testament is really all about the kingdom, then uh, we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot here. Well, let's just look at a couple. Jesus made what could easily be understood as the most ridiculous statement ever made in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, when he said, love your enemies. But it's not so ridiculous when you understand what biblical love is. Love is not primarily an emotion. In fact, it probably it doesn't really have anything to do with emotion. Love is all about choices. It's a decision. I'm going to love you. I am going to do what is best for you. I am going to act in a redemptive way every time, no matter what you say or do to me. This is what Jesus demands of his people. This is what kingdom citizens do. And no one exemplified that more than Jesus. Love your enemies. Paul says <clears throat> in Romans 12.10, Be at peace with all men. And he says elsewhere, in Romans 14, excuse me, Galatians 6.10, that we are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. We are a family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And what Jesus is telling us is that my loyalty to you has to come before anything else. If I love God, if I love Jesus then I will love you. I will love you as my brother and sister in Christ. I am blessed to have a family where my brothers and sisters, in-laws, sons, nephews, nieces, all know the Lord. And a lot of you are not in that position. A lot of you have a lot of tension in your families, your blood relatives, perhaps even because of your loyalty to Jesus. And remember who your real family is. Keep witnessing to them. Do everything you can to bring them to a knowledge of Jesus. But Jesus is challenging us to remember that spiritual blood is more important than physical blood. The second one, comes from the passage that Jess read for us earlier. Grace and love means we accept one another. Romans 14, 17. What Paul says here, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, in the context there, that's exactly what they were all arguing about. They were arguing about what they could eat and what they could drink. And the, the larger context there is whether the Jewish Christians were right that the Gentile Christians had to follow the dietary law of the Old Testament if they really were going to be followers of Jesus. And they were condemning each other and judging each other, looking down their noses at each other, Gentile Christians over here, Jewish Christians over here. Paul says, you know, this, this discussion about what you eat and drink, this is not what the kingdom of God's all about. Back when I was in uh, high school, a little town in Mississippi where I grew up, I remember one of the churches in our area, I think it was a Baptist church, had it split. And I don't remember if they were in a new building or they were renovating the one they were in, but the split was over the color of the new carpet. Let's plug that in. The color of the carpet is not what the kingdom of God is all about. God has given us an incredible gift over the past few months. I mean, here we are. We've got a lot of decisions to make. We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to have a lot of opinions. And Satan would love to use this to cause disunity among us and destroy our witness and get us bickering with each other. Let's not go there. Let's remember what the big picture is. Okay, we can permanently put these up here now, right? We don't have to take them down anymore. Making disciples, proclaiming Christ, bringing people into the kingdom, and helping kingdom citizens grow and understand what it means to follow Jesus. Everything else is petty differences of opinion that we, of course, need to work through, but let that become divisive. And finally, kingdom choices. Now, if I had told you all that this was an eight-point sermon, you'd have checked out on me at the beginning. Okay? And I lost some of you, but to point number three anyway. So I had to swear the men in the back to secrecy on this one. Kingdom choices. This is the other passage just read for us. This is Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. There in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked a question. He says to the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he asked them, Who do you say I am? I would like to suggest that that is the question of the ages. That is the question every single human being has to answer. And getting the answer correct, your eternal destiny depends on it. That's a pretty important question. Who do you think Jesus is? Simon Peter nailed it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pronounced a blessing on him because it was God the Father who had revealed that to Peter. I believe Jesus is still asking that question. Every time we proclaim the gospel, that is the question hidden in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news 
about Jesus Christ. Who is He? The Son of God, who became a man, who died on the cross for his sins, and rose victorious over the grave, and now sits, sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and He's going to come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And that's everyone. That's who He is. That's who He said He is. That's who Paul said He is. So the other books of the New Testament said He is. Do you believe that? But we must not stop there. Having the right theology is not going to get you into heaven. Once you know who Jesus is, what are you going to do about it? And we'll close with one more verse. Believe. Romans 4, 5. Paul says, to the one who does not work, in other words, don't try to earn your salvation because you can't. It's not just a bad idea, it's impossible. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who dies, who, excuse me, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, as right relationship. It centers around this word believe. It means to, to trust that I am depending on Jesus and Jesus alone to save me. I already know who he is, and now because of that, I believe in him and him alone to save me from my sins. So that's my question for you today. Do you know Jesus? Are you a citizen of his kingdom? If you are, I hope this has been a challenge to greater loyalty to Jesus. I know it certainly has been for me as I prepared the sermon. If you don't know Jesus, I hope today is the day of salvation for you. If you'd like to talk to some, some people, I'm available, Bill's available, Ken, our other elder that's here today is available. We have two people in the back who be willing to talk to you at any time and share more with you about this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love to us and for the joy we have because of what Jesus has done for us, this amazing salvation, this amazing kingdom this, that we are part of even now. And we ask, Father, that right now your Spirit will work in people's hearts, convict the lost of their sinfulness and their need of the Savior, and bring them by faith into your kingdom. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.